Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Christopher Shuffles, Communications Director for the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, I'll be talking to Alan Valance and Trevor Edwards. In this episode of the podcast, we're discussing theme six of the CI's new five-year strategic plan, Sustainable Institute. I'm joined by Alan Valance, Chief Executive of the CII, and Trevor Edwards, Finance Director. Here's my conversation with Alan and Trevor. Hello to you both. Hi, Alan. Thanks for joining me again, and welcome, Trevor. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. Hello. Hi, good to have you both with me today. So we're talking about theme six of the uh, strategic plan today. And Alan, we've got here, we've uh, we've talked about the previous five themes over these last five podcasts, and uh, they're all available on CIO Radio at this moment in time. We've got to the sixth theme. It's about a sustainable institute. It may be the last, but I guess it's not the least, is it? So what do we mean when we talk about creating a sustainable institute of the CIR? Oh, you're right, Chris. It certainly isn't the least, but it supports all of the other five themes as well because it's the you know it enables the organisation to deliver on everything we said we're, we're intending to do over the next five years. So, sustainable institute was very much about well, two things really. One is sustainable in the sense that many people understand it nowadays. Sustainability from a carbon footprint and net zero carbon perspective. Um, but it was also sustainable in the sense of operational sustainability, financial sustainability, you know, longevity. And it was a it was a sort of sign to the fact that I think the organization, it's fair to say, has had some real challenges over the last three or four years. You know, it came out of the pandemic, it had done lots of things during the pandemic, uh, opened up carried on. But at the same time, we'd had a very significant investment in IT as part of the transformation program. But we'd also uh, borne, if you like, uh, all of the costs of running the organisation. Honourably, we we didn't rely on the government's coronavirus job retention scheme. Uh, We actually funded our operations without any subsidy from the government. But that obviously had an impact on the financial position. But we we remained open. Uh, and coming out of the pandemic, obviously, our revenue was challenged like everybody else's, um, things like examinations in particular. So we've, you know, we've come through a lot of that. We're not quite there yet. But the organization had gotten into a challenging financial position and the IT systems weren't working as well as they should. So there's been a lot of work done in the last uh, nine or 10 months or so um, to address many of those issues. But going forwards, we actually want to be in an organisation which is, you know, operationally sound. The systems work brilliantly well. Um, the financial position is very strong. We can invest in everything for member benefit down the track, uh, and to generate public trust as well in in the profession that we represent. So, it was very much a sort of a statement of longevity and saying well, we've been around for you know, hundred years or so, and we're going to be around for the next hundred or so. But there's a lot of work we've got to do to get the organisation in a place where, you know, we can support the delivery of all the wonderful things we're going to still do. Absolutely, Alan. I suspect, Trevor, picking up on that theme then in terms of investing for the future, a key element is ensuring that the CI group returns to profitability through some of the things that Alan was describing there. But can you talk us through the ways in which we're going to be achieving that goal and and what progress is already being made in that respect? Thank you, Chris. And it's a pleasure to be on this podcast here today. Now, 
while the objects of the entities and the CII group are nonprofit oriented, in reality, the group must make operating surpluses or profits because it is from these profits that the group invests to improve and expand the services we offer to our members and students. The group reported operating profits means that the, each entity in the group should contribute to delivering a share of the group's profit. Now, the CII entity in particular last reported an operating profit in 2019 and reported a substantial operating loss in 2020 for the reasons as Alan has referred to earlier. Now, since 2020, and through the efforts of our teams, our CII colleagues, our members, students, and our volunteers, the CII has managed to reduce its operating loss substantially. However, up to 2020, the CII entity would have reported another operating loss, albeit a much smaller operating loss. Now, our objective in the strategic plan during this period, 2023 to 27, is that the CII entity returns to sustainable profitability while continuing to deliver profitability in the other entities in the group. Now, what this will do is that it will ensure that the group can build reserves or savings from these accumulation of profits so that we can continue to reinvest in our member and student services and continue to deliver the best customer service. Now, some of the things that we are doing to achieve a return to profitability during this strategic plan period would include broadening our products and services to cover the market demand and the needs of our members and students. And we're also working hard to improve the member experience to improve satisfaction. This will hopefully lead to increases in our membership as well as retention of members. We also have implemented a new CRM system coupled with career development tools that will assist learners in achieving their career goals by providing tailored content on what courses and units they would need in order to sit. And we're also constantly looking at ways to continue reducing costs across the group. And with this will continue by streamlining internal processes while investing in those processes that serve our members. Thanks, Trevor. And I think what, what we can see in the strategic plan is we've got a couple of key performance indicators in there as well, haven't we, that are related to the group surplus. So in 2023, we talk about a group operating surplus exceeding 1.3 million. And in 2024 to 27, that uh, operating surplus is to be exceeding 2 million pounds. In all of the chapters, or in all of the themes in the strategic plan, we have these key performance indicators, but we also have a set of other actions as well. And this particular theme, Alan, talks about a governance review and a group board effectiveness review being conducted. Um, so can you unpack those a little for us, please? Why are they actually necessary? And when might we expect them to take place? Great question, Chris. I think there's been a lot of talk and obviously some of that's appeared in the press recently around governance issues in the group with respect to the PFS and the CII. But taking a step back, just doing good governance means that if you're a mature organization, you're looking at the way in which your board works, you're looking at its effectiveness on a regular basis, and that's just normal good governance nowadays. So the CII group as a whole went through a kind of major governance piece in I think it was about 2020 or so when uh, before I arrived, but the organization uh, updated its royal charter, introduced an independent chair of the group board, and there were some sort of significant changes made then. And we're now three years or so in, into that. And during that time, there's been a lot of work done to 
look at the way in which the group is governed. Um, so the way the board works, the committees that report to the board, the structure of that governance, and that work continues because it's very healthy to keep looking at the way in which you govern yourselves and make sure it's effective. So in the time um, since all of that's been done, we've had uh, Helen Phillips as our chair for three years. She's now into her second term. We've also introduced board appraisal processes. So members of the board have that conversation uh, to look at their own effectiveness. The board considers its own effectiveness uh, on a regular basis. After every board meeting, we actually, Helen runs a session where we reflect on how the meeting's gone. So having been with the organisation for about 10 months or so, they're, you know, my own observations are they're really fantastic evidence of um, the fact that the organisation's governance is certainly amongst the best in um, in the sort of professional membership body space I've seen in a, in a very long time, which is really healthy. And I note that, um, as I understand it, the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, which I must put my hand up and say is my professional body by my primary qualification, are in fact going through exactly the same process, but they're a little behind where the CII is. So that I think overall I'm, I'm seeing evidence of an organisation that is mature enough to look at itself, to question how it's governed on a regular basis, uh, to sort of healthily challenge that and to change that as it goes. And to do that, it's supported by reviews of governance from time to time. So um, there's been a recent review uh, that the PFS board has done of its own governance. Uh, we've had a sort of one-off piece at the CII level, which is last year, but we're just going out for um, an organisation to support us on an ongoing piece of governance, um, effectiveness, board effectiveness at the CII. So in summary, uh, we've got up and running. We've got a very good governance framework now. We've got a governance structure where individuals and groups responsible for governance are reflecting on how effective that is on a, on a regular basis, at least annually. And then all of that goes forward as, you know, as needed uh, for updates in the future of the the Royal Charter, which is the primary governing document, set of documents, and all the supporting structures down the track. So the, the other things that we'll do in time are look at the various committees that are up and running, how effective they are in uh, overseeing the actions and activities across the group, uh, how that feeds into updating the board, uh, how we feed back through the local institute forums that we've got, give members all of that feedback as well, because it's really important that the organisation is transparently sharing that kind of governance as well. So but we'll also look at the way in which we work through the Local Institute National Forum, which represents all of our 54 or so local institutes on the CII side. And we've also separately got the PFS regions as well, because I think it's really important that they share in, you know, an understanding of how the organisation is governed to best effect, Chris. Mm, no, absolutely. And uh, it really just certainly sounds like a, a very broad and really positive and healthy thing to be doing. Uh, the, the breadth that you described there, taking it from uh, the CI group board level all the way through uh, the different elements of governance across the organisation, really does sound like the, the right things that our members would expect us to be doing. And, and another thing that our members might also expect, Trevor, is for us to be thinking about diversity and inclusion uh, in the organisation. And 
within the theme, uh, we talk about uh, making sure that we have targets set for those who are representing us both across our board, but also across our, our staff composition as well. So over the next five years, one of the key things we'll be doing is thinking about how we bring a more diverse workforce together as part of the CII. And can you talk us through, Trevor, you know, why is this important to the business and how is it going to benefit our members and the profession as a whole? Certainly, Chris. This is a very key part of the strategy of the CII group going forward. Our staff colleagues at the CII group represent a diverse group of team members who are committed to our professions and to supporting members of those professions that we serve. Now, they are vital to our strategy and our very existence, and we must not lose sight of the importance of diversity. Research has shown that diverse teams provide diversity of thought, innovation, and creativity leading to positive outcomes in terms of products and services, which benefits, in our case, our members and students who represent our professions and the organization as a whole. We know that the public want to see themselves represented among our professionals and their professional membership bodies, so their varying needs are truly understood. For us, this means looking at the different pathways people take to joining the insurance and personal finance professions, but also the challenges they may face. We recognize that we need to be walking the walk when it comes to improving diversity across our professions, and we need to show that it is part of our culture, as well as encouraging others to make it part of theirs. So, we also believe that it's important that our teams reflect the diversity of the membership and customers that we serve. But we know that we need to go further. So we will be setting targets to ensure that we deliver a representation across our governance structures and our colleague grades. Thanks, Trevor. And we'll be setting those targets over the course of the next few months. And we're also reviewing them over the, the period of this strategic plan as well, because this is clearly an area where things are changing and where we want to be at the forefront and, and leading thinking in this particular place. One of the other elements, Alan, uh, within the, uh, the theme is around hybrid working. So, you know, when we've got, you know, uh, our workforce on site uh, in our UK office in London, they have one particular experience. But then, you know, we've moved into a world where everybody can work from home and we're recording this particular podcast from three different locations today. So um, working practices are changing. And I guess we are thinking about how we place ourselves for the future, how we think about we're going to work most effectively uh, for the future and what that means. So does this mean the CIO is looking to move offices again anytime soon? Or what, what's, the, what's the outlook for uh, where you and I might find ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, just to sort of put some facts down first, we've got a lease on our current space, which is some of the floor space on the third floor of the walkie-talkie building in Fenshire Street, which is in the city of London, of course. Um, so we do need to start to think about what happens after that lease expires and, and um, whether we stay or, or whether we choose to do something else. So there's a workplace issue for us to consider anyway. But in that context, um, we, you know, having been through the pandemic, as every other organisation has had to do so and come out the other side, we're all facing a similar challenge. So I have a regular catch up with other peers, uh, other CEOs of membership bodies, and this is the topic one of the topics of conversation actually regularly and it's really interesting to compare and contrast so so those organizations that own their own building are in a position where they've got a hybrid situation staff don't come in all of the time 
So they are tending to now sublet some of their space with other organisations because eventually, you know, you need to fill that space to make that building viable. So there's a kind of commercial reality to these sorts of things for some organisations. We're in a different position because we don't own the space. Um, we, we're, we're lessee. So for us, that's an important consideration, but it's not as pressing a matter as some other bodies in that sense. Hybrid working works very well for a lot of people, uh, and you're right, quite right. We're, we're all recording this at home today rather than the office. This week I've been into the office three days. Last week it was three. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. And so what, we're, what we've got is a flexible sort of workplace now, but times are changing. And I think the really important thing is to is – to, and this is for – for all organisations, is to really understand what you've got the space for and why you're using it and how that fits into a new hybrid model going forwards. So we might find that in time, for example, if we decide that the lease would be renewed, what I think we would do differently is the space itself, as you know, but for the listeners who haven't been into the building, is what I describe as traditional rigid desk space. So the desks are fixed. Um, they're in banks. People sit, you know, wherever they book a desk. But actually, you'd have to say to yourself, if you're going to come into work and sit at a desk and do Teams calls, you could do that at home. So I think the nature of the workplace has to change as much as everything, anything else. So we have to have um, a space that's configurable, that's flexible, that might be more effective for project space, project time. So that might simply mean desks have got wheels on them and you can wheel them around and configure a team space more effectively. It might mean something else. So those are the things that we need to think through about the workplace itself. On the kind of people side of it, people do love the flexibility of it and it's an attractive proposition for employees. So employers need to really consider that nowadays. I think for us, and and again, it's an issue that is prevalent across all businesses, but if I focus on membership bodies in particular, we've moved uh, an organisation to be much more disparate now and, and diverse geographically. So we've got employees who work outside of London. We've got employees who live in places like York, Northern England, Northwest, Northeast. Um, we've got, uh, I think our furthest employee would be based in Glasgow, I think. Um, so if we cover the breadth of you know, to some degree, the breadth of the UK. And so that's really attractive. So people come to the office a couple of days a week, and I don't see that changing um, fundamentally. What I do see changing is that we're better at working as teams so that teams are more empowered to understand, well, you know, what we're finding is a team will want to all be in the office on a day. In fact, your team does that, don't they? Yes, we do, yeah. So it's a bigger day a week where the team's in and you can actually physically interact And what people do miss, and this is a really important bit, is the ability to collaborate with colleagues in face-to-face discussions. You do miss something by doing these Teams and Zoom calls in terms of collaboration as as, um, teams in organizations. So you collaborate within your team. You collaborate across teams. So what we want to do more of is understanding, you know, the team charter, if you like. You know, we will be in one day a week. We work closely with another team. We'll, we'll line up our day with their day. That will be much more effective. So we want to be able to support that um, down the track. And we also want people to be fulfilled. You know, people who want to come in to the office because they value 
the collaboration, but they also value on-the-job mentoring because I think that's something that's really suffered during the pandemic and since. Um, I think it's really important that some people have the opportunity to be able to develop in their own careers with the organisation you know, by physically being in the office with colleagues who can mentor them you know, and can give them those development opportunities. So in, in summary, I think it's about flexibility, and I don't think anybody's got it right yet. Um, so we're also going to be looking outside the organization and really considering, okay, what um, what does that mean for us for the future? And how do we adopt, you know, that new working practice to the extent that we need to? Really fascinating. Alan. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know from my own team's perspective that we really value those opportunities to just ask the off-the-cuff questions and have those, you know, thoughts and ideas that we can we can bounce off one another in the moment when we're in the office. But also, you know, it frees us up when we're working in other places to get on with and get our heads down and get some of the other work done. So uh, really great to have you both join us today. Deeply appreciate it. Uh, a final thought, perhaps, from you, Alan. We're uh, we've come to the end of this podcast series, unpacking the six themes. Uh, we're very much actively in the delivery phase now of the strategic plan. I suppose you know, looking ahead to you know your hopes for the next few months and years. Are there anything in particular that you're uh, you're, you're keenly thinking about at this moment in time, or is it very much a, a general? Let's get our heads down. Let's get on with this. Uh, and let's uh, really uh, deliver on this plan. I think it is partly the latter, Chris. I have to say, um, because we, you know, we put a lot of effort into that plan and pulling that story together and uh, communicating it, and through things like this podcast, which has been a wonderful series, actually. Um, so well done to you and the team for putting it together. There's a lot of effort that goes into pulling that story together, but there's going to be even bigger effort in making you know, sure that we deliver on it. And, and I think it's important to recognise that. You know, pulling that story together has been a brilliant piece of work and it's brought people together, but it's the start of the journey. And the important thing is that members, others judge the organisation by what we did, we deliver and judge us by that as well. We're accountable for that. You know, we've got to get on and deliver it. But it's not a chore. It's actually really exciting. I think the story that we put together is a really exciting one about the future of the organisation. And I see huge amounts of opportunity for the Institute going forwards. Um, I think staff are excited by that. I'm certainly excited by that. And we've been doing a lot of talking with our members in local um, regions. So we do, we've just done our second series of digital town hall meetings. I've described the plan. It's been very well received. And everybody just wants us to get on and do that now. So that's really what the plan is. And of course, this year in the plan was really about getting the foundation sorted. And I think we're doing well in that regard. Still got a way to go. Um, but I'm hoping that members particularly see the experience with the Institute if they're calling in. Uh, it's much you know, easier now. We're answering calls quicker. We're resolving the problems more quickly. Um, the systems issues that we've had are you know, mostly resolved, but we've still got some to deal with. Um, so they're seeing the organisation being more effective, which will earn us the right to then do all the other things that we want to do on top of that, which is really about delivering you know, all the things we said in the plan, better services to members, having a bolder voice, getting the institute out there and making a big difference. So I'm excited, Chris, and, and I'm sure the team is going to get behind and get on with it. But uh, we've got a job to do. There's no doubt about that, Chris. Fabulous. All right. Well, that sounds like a, a great point to end on. Thank you, Alan. Uh, and thank you, Trevor, for also joining me today on this podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely. Right. Uh, so we've covered off each of the six themes from the CI strategic plan uh, in the podcast. And if you want to go back and listen to the previous five, they're all available on CII Radio. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of CII Radio. To find out more, visit thejournal.cii.co.uk slash podcasts or follow us on Twitter at CII Group. Until next time, goodbye.